You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Again, um, the passage is Acts 14, 8 through 20. And if you will, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now at Lystra, there was a man who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycanian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we're looking at the book of the Acts of the uh, Ascended Jesus. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, it's, the book of Luke is the, uh, the actions of Jesus while he was uh, on earth. And then in the uh, book of Acts, which is the second part of Luke-Acts, uh, then he ascends. He doesn't just rise from the, the grave. He actually ascends into heaven and goes to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he judges. Uh, he rules the world. He reigns. The apostles um, are just the ones that are animated by him, uh, by his Holy Spirit. 
And we, our, our job as, uh, as the church is to be a witness to his, his unique kind of reign. And we've seen, the, we've seen the gospel go from Jerusalem and then it spread out uh, into Judea, beyond Jerusalem, and then Samaria, a little beyond Judea. And then it started moving out of Jewish territory up into uh, Antioch. And from Antioch, we saw that this is a city in, like, in Syria today, which is uh, a good deal north of Jerusalem. So now it's in Gentile territory. And from Antioch, it was the first church that actually sent out missionaries to spread the reign of Christ, his witness. And uh, the two missionaries happened to be the two, the two main pastors of the church of Antioch. It was the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, his friend Barnabas. And so these two pastors are sent out from Antioch and they go to the island of Cyprus and they cross the island. Uh, this is a two-year trip. Then they go up into Turkey. And we saw them last week at Pisidian Antioch, uh, the city of Antioch and Pisidia. And then they went down to Iconium and he preached in a synagogue there. Uh, and now they have moved to Lystra out of Iconium. They were kicked out of both uh, Pisidian Antioch and they were kicked out of Iconium because they were preaching the gospel. And they're going to be kicked out of Lystra as well. Um, the thing, uh, this is a 1,200-mile round trip. This is one of the last places they go. And the thing that is unique about Lystra that I wanted to concentrate on is because Lystra is a, is a city uh, that is dominated by the worship of Zeus. As you can see, there was a priest of the Temple of Zeus. There was probably no synagogue or else it would have recorded them going to the synagogue because they, they always went to the synagogue first. Those were like the stepping stones where the early Christian missionaries went. They went to synagogues and they... They went to the Jewish people first because that's who the Messiah came from, or his own people, the Jewish people. And so uh, this is the most pagan territory they've probably ever come to, uh, the city of Lystra. And uh, that's why his main message in verse 15, he doesn't talk about any of the things he talked about in the sermon last week. In In the sermon last week, he was talking to the synagogue about all these Jewish things, about the David and Abraham and the story of Israel. And this week, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff. He completely changes the way that he presents the gospel. This week, the gospel is simply this, verse 15. We bring you good news that you can now turn from vain things to the living God. He says, in the past, God has let people go their own way. He's let them follow their their vain things, their false gods, their idols. But now that the Messiah has reigns and is the right hand of the Father... Now uh, you can turn from these vain things because the Holy Spirit has come and you're able to turn and repent as we will see this man do in this story. So basically that's the, the simple gospel to, the, to these pagans who've never heard anything about Judaism is, is turn from your false gods of Zeus and Hermes and um, stop trying to appease them with your sacrifices as they did. You can see them do that in this passage. They try to offer a bull because they think that the gods have come down. So Paul's saying you can stop all that nonsense about appeasing your little false gods by making sacrifices to them so they will protect you or give you what you want. Stop that and now embrace the living God who gives you himself generously. He gives you everything generously, especially himself. So uh, that's the two, the two main things I want to look at are the living God and the vain things. Uh, the vain things are these little gods that we worship that are always fairly chaotic and fickle and capricious, and uh, they're very changeable, they're erratic. You quite never know what they're going to be feeling towards you. Uh, I'll just call them irritable. The, uh, the, the irritable gods, uh, which uh, we have to keep happy, 
Uh, we've got to keep them uh, appeased by our sacrifices. And then the living God who gives us everything freely with no strings attached. Okay, so those two things. Um, and I'm going to say that the irritable gods are often the way we think of as our God. So Paul and Barnabas uh, come to Lystra. There's no synagogue. And so what they do is God performs a sign and a wonder, which we see this throughout the book of Acts. The, uh, the risen, ascended Lord you know, sends his Holy Spirit, and this man is healed, who was lame from birth. That's the sign and wonder. That's the spark that then grabs the attention of the crowd. And it's supposed to be a witness to the presence of the living God. But, verse 11, it totally backfires. The crowd, um, that just deepens their idolatry. It, it deepens their false worship. In verse 11, it says, when the crowd saw it, they shouted, the gods have come down in human form. And Barnabas, they called Zeus because he was probably taller, more uh, majestic looking. He was grander. Uh, Zeus was the god of thunderbolts, the god who was the, the father of all the gods. He was the great god, uh, the, the all-knowing one. And then he called Paul Hermes, who was like a trickster god, a messenger, one of the many, many children uh, of Zeus. So you have Zeus uh, and Hermes, and they, as so often happens in the Greek myths, uh, they come down. And often Zeus impregnates women, and uh, Hermes plays tricks on people. Um, so they think that they're these false gods, these vain things have come down in human form. And part of the reason they, um, they think that is because the city of Lystra, we know from uh, this particular writer named Ovid, who wrote uh, just before this, one of those things that um, confirms the historic reliability of the New Testament. In, in, uh, in Ovid's writing, there's a legend where Zeus and Hermes actually come to the city of Lystra. And they're looking for someone to take them in. So they go from house to house and nobody will take them in. Uh, finally, one old couple takes them in. Uh, but, but Zeus and Hermes are so disgusted by Lystra and their lack of hospitality that they, they destroy the city. And so now you can imagine, you know, a few decades later, here come these two guys and they perform a miracle. And this whole city thinks it's Zeus and Hermes again. We've got to do something. Because last time we screwed this up. And so in verse 13... It says the priest of Zeus, I'm sure he hurriedly brought some, their best cows, you know, the, the, probably the most expensive things in the city, these beautiful oxen, uh, and they had garlands over there, over there uh, the, they put garlands over the oxen's uh, shoulders just to make them more beautiful, to make them a, a better offering, and they brought them to the gates to Paul and Barnabas, and they tried to sacrifice to them. You know, they're about to sacrifice they're probably bowing down to them and maybe chanting to them. And they're about to kill the oxen and sacrifice. And, um, and it's, like they, um, it's like they thought these gods uh, were like a bad boss um, who you never kind of exactly know what kind of mood they're going to be in that day if you go to work. Uh, if you have a supervisor or a boss like that, it could be a, a co-worker or a colleague or it could be your professor uh, who knows? But, you know, you never know what mood they're going to be in. So you have to kind of keep them happy um, by appeasing them in some way. And that's the way they conceived of uh, their gods. They were very fickle. You never quite knew what they were going to do. And I, I remember when I was studying Latin in high school and I just thought, did these Roman people actually believe these things? Because, uh, you know, Socrates, Plato, uh, Aristotle were Greek, and they were very wise. Uh, they were very rational. 
And so I thought, how could people actually believe that there was someone like Zeus and Hermes, these incredibly superstitious you know, things? But then I thought about how often we treat God the same way. Um, we treat God like God is some kind of um, like a vending machine where you, uh, you put in, well, you used to put in the quarter. Um, I think you now you tap your phone on it and then the thing comes out. So you sacrifice to God and God gives you something. It's very transactional, very mechanical. Sometimes I'll think, um, you know, I don't think it necessarily that consciously, but I know it's going on somewhere down there. That if I skip prayer this day, um, my day's not going to go well. And, and not in the sense that, you know, there's one sense in which that's true. If you don't pray, it's your, your day is less likely to go well because you're not going to be close to God. But I'm thinking about it in terms of a more superstitious way. Like, if I don't pray, uh, God's going to zap me or do something uh, to punish me the way that Zeus might. Or if I don't read the Bible before I go to bed, I might not sleep very well. I've caught myself thinking that as well. And I imagine you have too. Or here's one I hear from other people a lot. If I get too excited about this new thing in my life, like whether it's romance or a job, or maybe you're pregnant, if I get too excited about this, then God might take it from me. Because I'm excited about it. The gods might take it from me. And so it's, we, it's not that hard to see how they would have gotten themselves in that kind of mindset. Because I feel like we do that too. It's almost like the default human um, way of thinking about heaven is this uh, mechanical pull a lever, perform a ritual, and it'll prevent a disaster, it'll get a blessing. You know, we've all seen athletes, uh, especially baseball players, they'll, they'll take a little cross and they'll kiss it, or they'll give the, make the sign of the cross like several times, or they'll go like that. And all these things, you know, some of them might be faithful believers, but I imagine a lot of that is just superstition. That if I do this enough times, I might hit a home run or something like that. Protect me from striking out. Uh, Again, we treat God like a vending machine. And so if you want something from God, it's going to cost you something. You've got to do this thing because he's not that inclined to give you what you want. That's That's what's back in the back of our minds. That he's really not that inclined to give you good things. Um. His feelings towards me are fairly erratic and, and at best maybe neutral. At worst, he's, uh, he's frustrated with me. He's irritated with me. After the prayer meeting, there was a group of us at uh, Cafe Arthur's on Thursday morning and uh, someone talked about this teacher they had heard. Teacher said, uh, so everybody raise your hands if you believe God loves you. It was a Christian group, so everybody raised their hand. And then the teacher said, okay, put your hands down now. Raise your hands if you think God likes you. And, and very few hands went up. And it's because we think that it's his duty to like us, uh, to love us, that he kind of has to do that because he's God. So uh, that's why he had to send his son because it's his duty to love us. But he doesn't really enjoy, enjoy being with me. Or he doesn't consider me like a friend. Uh, actually, I tend to think that he's pretty disappointed in the way I live my life daily, a lot of my daily habits. So I was watching the NBA playoffs, you know, this afternoon, um, and I just think, you know, God's like, you know, it's not that I, I hate that he does that, but I, w- I just wish he could do better. Um, or like I'll go get my iced tea at Panera with my sip club, and he's like, I thought we'd been over this, you know, one, one too many times. Uh, God's like okay to give us a few gifts, but it's like 
You know, a, a mom or a dad saying, first you eat your veggies, and then you might have a little bit of dessert uh, if you've done the right thing. Not, not too many gifts. And we just have this feeling that that's the way God feels towards us. Um, and we're kind of a chore, actually. We're kind of a chore to him, I think, if we're really honest with ourselves. That's how we think about God. I was with my um, cousins that really intimidated me a few weeks ago. I've mentioned this in a sermon. They were the cousins that, on my dad's side of the family, we would go every year to Polly's Island, have a vacation together. They're very intimidating people. I was with them. I actually asked people to pray for me about that interaction because I was nervous about it, and I uh, had, had to pump myself up with music before I got there. I was really worried about re-entering that teenage mindset of feeling excluded. And so it was going really well for, for the majority of the time, and then there was one time where two of them they like um, they kind of huddled close to talk, and I was next to them. And on the other side, there were other two that huddled together, and I was pinched out. And they were kind of at forty-five degrees to me, both of them. And that's and then my mind starts racing with those thoughts, like I'm boring to them. I'm the last person they want to talk to. I'm a duty to get over with. And so often, I think we believe that that God is like, you know, while I'm praying, He's checking His watch. Uh, he's got more important things to do. He's got some people to feed that are hungry or some people to evangelize that are lost. And he's itching to get away from me and my trivial mundane requests. And I think that this irritable God that we believe in is the reason a lot of people don't come to church Um, or they just barely make it to church because they're like, it's been so long or I've done all these bad things and everybody's going to be looking at me because I don't belong here. We just impute all these thoughts to God and to other people. I often say, nobody's going to be thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Trust me, they're not, they're not wondering you know, where you've been or what you've done. But the irritable gods, uh, we feel like we have to keep them happy and placate them and appease them and mollify them. Because they could be in a really bad mood. And that's sadly how often we think of the living God. And Paul is saying, turn away from those irritable gods. And turn towards the living God. You know, when they come down, when they come down to earth, you've got to sacrifice to them. But when the living God comes down to earth, he sacrifices for you. You know, one, one way of thinking about it is like a child. I heard um, Tara Lee Cobble say this. She does the Bible recap. And she said, one child wrecks their car and they say, oh my gosh, I hope dad does not find out about this. He's going to kill me. And the other child wrecks the car and says, I need to talk to dad. Like, I've got to talk to dad. Only he can help me. And that's, that's the difference in these two ways of, of viewing God. So verse 8, there was a man who was lame from birth and he had never walked. And I imagine, especially in that worldview, uh, that they, they thought this man was cursed. Uh, they probably almost never looked at him. Uh, probably gave him very little Someone I know runs a school uh, in Guatemala for kids who are, have special needs, like this person was. He, he would have been considered someone with special needs, maybe had a club foot or something. Um, but this person who runs that school in Guatemala says that a lot of times they've really got to empower and encourage the kids because the, the kids are often just ignored and shunned by the village or their family. And they, they consider themselves cursed because they are that way. And so I imagine this man... Um, who sat there at that same place and never walked, lame from birth, he has probably been hearing his whole life, this, you, you've been cursed by Zeus. Because this is like, this is the city of Zeus. 
And now in verse 9, it says he's listening to Paul speaking. And Paul is looking directly at him. And I imagine that's because for the first time ever, this guy is hearing about this living God that will actually heal him with no strings attached. Where he doesn't have to make any kind of sacrifice. And sure enough, in verse 10, Paul just says, stand up on your feet. And the living God pours his life into this man. And it says the man jumped up. He didn't struggle up. It wasn't like post-surgery. He just, he leapt up. His, his muscles were working full tilt and he began to walk. And then Paul tells him after that, just to make it really clear what happened. He's like, verse 17, God loves to do you good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And that is my favorite verse in this passage. That he's telling the guy, there are no strings attached to this healing at all. And you don't have to do anything now. You don't have to make up for that. God loves to do good things to you. You don't need to sacrifice to Zeus or to Hermes. You know, the fake gods measure out their blessings with little coffee spoons. But the, the real God is freely pouring out blessings. He loves it when you play golf or get coffee or if I go to Panera or watch the NBA. Are these things that we feel like bad about uh, that we don't think he really likes us doing? And they can become idols at times. But in general, he loves to provide us even small pleasures. That's why he says uh, he gives you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. And he even says that he satisfies your heart with gladness. He likes it when you enjoy the things he gives you. Good food. Good drink. I love Psalm 65, 10. This is how Psalm 65 ends. Um, The psalmist is praising God for God's desire uh, to bless us. And the psalmist says, you provide your people with grain. You bless their crops. You crown the year with bounty. The carts overflow with abundance. In other words, a cart is so full of dates or figs or grapes that um, it's like jostling back and forth and the grooves are just filled with these good things. Your carts overflow with abundance. The meadows are covered with flocks of sheep. The valleys are mantled with grain. And I love this part. They shout and sing for joy. In other words, even the valleys of grain and flocks love to give us their best. They're like, we give this to humans for their good. Because we love to because you commanded us to. And so all of nature is this incredible gift from God. And can you imagine this man's joy of going from uh, this kind of strict stepdad God. um, Like walking on eggshells all the time with Zeus and Hermes. And now the real father of grace, where you can like fall asleep on your dad, you know, rubbing your back. That's that's completely different kind of relationship. And that's the ultimate gift of God It's not stuff. Stuff is uh, God can, you know, he creates the, the flowers that are gorgeous, which are here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire. Stuff's nothing to God. It's it's himself. The only reason he doesn't give you. Even more stuff is because he knows that would block you from enjoying himself. But the big gift that he gives you is to be this great father to you. He gives you himself. And that is his costliest gift by far. Uh, The other stuff is easy for him. But to give you himself, 
uh, cost him his life. Because the living God of grace, when the living God of grace comes to us, uh, what do humans do? We, we try to kill him. We did kill him. You see the, uh, the way in verse 19 that the living God is so offensive to stingy humans, idolaters who love our own gods that we can control and manipulate. And so it says they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. I love it that the same crowd that was worshiping him not much earlier is now murdering him. It was kind of like Jesus when he came into the temple, they cried Hosanna. And then like a week later, they're saying crucify, crucify. And they've left him for dead. They've left Paul for dead. Paul in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Paul, the vessel of the living God. He's been left for dead. But then there's this kind of, there's this little mini resurrection. And a lot of commentaries say that he actually did die. That he actually did die. And so in verse 19, when it says the disciples gathered about him, they were praying for him. And he rose up. Kind of like a mini death and resurrection. And uh, when he rose up, If I had risen up after being stoned, I would have fled the other direction, back home to Antioch. But he goes back into Lystra. Uh, Verse 19, he re-entered the city. Again, this is the living God of grace. The living God of grace is so fully inhabiting the Apostle Paul that he says, go back in there. And he doesn't go back in there like Zeus to destroy them. He doesn't go back in there to destroy them. He goes in there uh, to preach the living God. To preach the God of grace. And again, Zeus and Hermes, when they come down, they come down to kill. But when the living God comes down, he comes down to sacrifice himself, to be killed, and to give his life to us. And that's what we celebrate in this meal, which is the, uh, the feast of the living God. Remember, we love these rascals.